This is Mary Lewis at A Tiny Homestead, the podcast comprised entirely of conversations with homesteaders, cottage food producers, and crafters. Today I'm talking with Brandon at Triple Silo Meats about organic chicken and beef. Good morning, Brandon. How are you? We're doing good. How about yourself, Mary? Doing great. Um, So tell me about Triple Silo Meats and what you guys do and why you do it. <laughs> well, Triple Silo Meats is a, is a family business that we, we homesteaded back in the late 1800s and then kind of got, got off the path a little bit, started going the conventional route. And then in, we got real heavy into livestock and feedlots. Then in the right around 2000, we decided that organic was the way that we wanted to go, try to better the, the people of the world instead of just our own pocketbooks. And we switched to organic in 2000. And then in 2017, my wife and I looked at the business again and wanted to switch it more to homesteading and focusing on our customers and what they want. So then we rebranded to Triple Silo Meats, tried to, we sold almost all the equipment and now are focusing on pretty much the homesteading basics with heavy on the livestock side and then selling nutritious meats to anybody that wants it in our local seven state area. And that's just to keep costs down and that way we can have a relationship with everybody we sell to. Nice. So where are you guys located? We're located in southwest Minnesota in a little town called Lamberton. Okay. So I have questions about organic meats and organic butchers because I don't quite know how that all works. And if you want to give me the rundown on how you keep your animals organic, I would love that. Absolutely. So organic animals have to be raised from the third trimester in the womb all the way through butchering on an organic operation. Now, we go above and beyond what's required in the organic rules. We we do everything on pasture and grass, which also makes certifying organic easier because we're not putting all these inputs in. Our only input on our operation is salt, and that's just added out on the pasture with a salt lick block when sometimes we use granulars. But otherwise, 365 days of the year, they're out on pasture eating grass. And then if the snow gets too thick or or we have ice, then we throw some hay out, but it's hay from our pasture. And then okay, when you get so, it to... When so you is, get the it only, to, is the only grass that they're getting, the only hay from your land, is that the only gra- the, the only hay they get? Correct. Okay. So we, we could buy hay as well. So if for some reason we got into a major crunch, we could go out and buy certified organic hay. But that comes with a, a certificate saying that the person we bought it from is certified organic. Okay. And then when we, All right. when we go to butcher, our butcher also has to be certified organic. And I have questions about that too. Um, so if a butcher is certified organic, does that mean that they don't butcher non-organic meat as well? So they can butcher non-organic meat, but they have to 
clean and sterilize everything before they process ours. So generally what the butchers do is they'll have us come in first thing in the morning or organic guys. If they if they do dual, they'll clean the night before using our only organic approved products. Do the organic processing first thing in the morning and then switch to non-organic after that. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like a kosher kitchen versus a non-kosher kitchen, I would assume. Exactly. Okay, cool. Um, so now my next my next question. I have lots of questions. When I realized you guys were organic meats only, I was like, oh, finally, someone who can, can speak to this. If you have a cow or a steer come down ill and you have to treat them, what do you end up doing with that animal? Because they are no longer considered to be organic, correct? So, I, we just had that happen. <laughs> I've gone okay. almost five years without having an illness because we're our pasture-based. We just don't have sickness generally. Mm-hmm. But last, we did have a problem. And it was because of how cold and wet we were and we had to treat. So, we treated using tinctures. So yeah. Specifically, garlic tinctures is what we went to just to get their immune system boosted up. And then also belladonna tablets, which are certified or that you can use those in organic operations, which was allowed allowed us to keep our organic status with adding just natural herbs to try to help manage the livestock. And then when they got we we did have four head that got too sick and we had to give antibiotics, which that's an absolute no no on our operation. Those right. got biotics, and then once they got healthy, we sold them off to a a conventional market. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. I was just wondering about it because I was like, "What do you do if your if your critters are actually really sick and you can't treat them with a natural cure?" We don't want um, them to die, so yeah, we treat and then find another avenue to sell them out and. Then they're removed from our organic program. Okay. How many head do you have? So currently we're running 50 head, and that's a mix of a cow-calf operation. So ours is a, a closed-loop system. So we have our cow-calves, we have our yearlings, and then our finished, stuff, finished livestock that's going to go to butcher. And how old are they when they go to butcher? We shoot for two years, and that's okay. in Minnesota. It's hard to get them through. It costs too much to go through the third winter. Ideally, we'd want them about two and a half to three years, but it it just doesn't work here. Okay, and how how many pounds is a two year old steer? Two year old steer is going to be just over a thousand, maybe eleven hundred, if everything works really well. And then the heifers are going to be coming in at about nine to nine fifty. Okay, and that's on the hoof. That's on the hoof. Okay, cool. They're okay, smaller, so- since they're on pasture, they're smaller frame. Sure. Yeah, because they're not getting any grain. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So now I have those questions that popped in my head right away answered. Tell me. Tell me the difference between the end product with 
your pasture fed versus grain finished beef? Sure. So we can get in a lot of arguments about that. What we have found on our operation and in our family is the meat taste has a totally different taste. It's got more of a, a, you can smell the beef coming off as you cook it, the beef smell, and it just has a much deeper, richer flavor. So is it? Has nutritional benefits as well. Okay. I want to get to that too. Um, I grew up with um, a family that hunted. Both my parents hunted deer. And I did not love venison because it was so dark and I didn't love the taste of it. And my dad called it gamey. And I don't want to I don't want to imply that your beef is gamey because that's probably not a great association to make. But is it the same idea? Is it a darker, richer, I don't know, heavier flavor? I don't know if it's a darker, heavier flavor. It's just a it's just different. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. It, it doesn't cool. taste like a, a game meat where it, you, it, you're just overwhelmed with the gamey taste of it. Yeah. It, it's a smooth. Now, you can get gamey grass-fed meats, but that's if you're... So the reason most game gets that gamey flavor is because they don't have a real diverse diet. Mm-hmm. On our pastures, they're very diverse pastures, so lots of different species of grasses. Oh, okay. Awesome. All right. So you were saying nutrition value. Tell me about that. Well, we should probably take a step back. When you put cattle Mm -hmm. in a feedlot and you start feeding them grain, their bodies weren't designed for grain. So specifically, if you go and get a, say like a Jersey or a Holstein and you put it in on, in a feedlot on grain, by the time they're ready to go to the butcher, they're going to fall over and die because the, their mm-hmm. insides are been overworked, over pushed, and you just don't have much time left because it's not how they were designed to be raised. Now, by going back to grass, we don't have that. So then that's where we're getting all this other nutritional value out of it. So, okay, like, like the vitamins, the antioxidants, the omega threes. The omega threes, thirty to sixty days after you start feeding corn, the good omega threes disappear. But by feeding them grass, you get okay. in the in the meat, and then the end consumer gets to consume the good omega threes. Okay. So then that leads me to another question. See, I'm, I'm full of questions today. This is great. Um, I know that with the, I don't know, a steak you buy at the local grocery store that was raised on a feedlot usually has pretty good fat marbling. And from what I understand about frying or grilling steaks, the more fat marbling, the better the tenderness of the steak. So is there a diff- a big difference between what you're doing and the tenderness of the meat and what a feedlot is doing? There is. So on, I'll, I'll 
go onto the feedlot first. First, you have two mm-hmm. different types of feedlots. If you go to the grocery store, generally, mm-hmm. they age the meat at the butcher is the, how they have changed the tenderness. So okay. you need marbling, high marbling in it because they're only aging it for generally seven days and it's a wet age. Now, if you would buy mm-hmm. off a, a feedlot and have it butchered yourself and ask for a dry age of the meat and then go to, say, 17 to 21 days, that meat is going to be more tender than the stuff you're buying in the grocery store mm-hmm. because it was aged. Now, when you get into grass fed, we don't have the thick marbling that you can get when you're grain feeding, but yep. we age longer so that the meat gets gets that tenderness at the butcher. Okay, so it's not it's not necessarily the marbling, it's the aging that matters. Yeah, the, the marbling does matter in the taste, but not necessarily in the tenderness. Mm-hmm. That's more or less the butcher process and the dry age, the, the way they age the meat. That's how you can really change the tenderness of it. It's okay. breaking down. That inside. I did not know. Cool. Okay, so I think I think I have all of the questions that popped into my head when I found out I was going to be talking to you answered. So tell me about your um, your homesteading and what you're doing because this is a tiny homestead podcast and we should probably talk about homesteading too. So, like I said before, we we really switched through just through the years of our home. so this was a basic homestead back in the early 1900s just like any traditional homestead and then we we started going following the way of agriculture and got out of homesteading now we're trying to go back because just like most people on your podcast have realized there's a it's not a better way of living per se but it can cost you a lot less money and can make you more time to enjoy your family and that's what we've been trying to do on our homestead is we sold all the equipment. We spend so much time working on equipment and now we're growing bigger gardens, growing all of our own. We don't really buy meat anymore because we raise it all mm-hmm. and want to sell that to anybody that wants high quality meat and then be able to educate them and bring them onto our homestead and show them what we're doing. So we have an open door policy. Anytime somebody wants to come and see our operation, see what we're doing, people walk on our farm all the time. We'll stop what we're doing if we can, walk them around, show them what's going on. But on the homesteading side, we're really focusing on trying to grow all of our own food. We haven't got into a dairy cow yet, but it's definitely on our radar. We we can get raw milk from local dairies where we're at, but it it sounds like a good way and someday we'll get a dairy cow but right now we're focusing on our garden because that's we have the land we have the resources to already do that to grow all of our own food yeah there's nothing like eating your own produce from your own garden we have a huge garden here and every year the first tomato comes in and i eat it and i'm so excited to have a fresh right out of the garden tomato 
And then we get to first part of September and I'm like, I don't want to see another tomato for a month and a half at least because I've eaten so many of them. It's, yeah. it's crazy to me that I'm, I'm so beside myself with joy with the first bite of the first tomato. And two months later, I'm like, I can't even think about eating another tomato right now. <laughs> yeah. And then, so then also along with our garden, we're on our pasture, since we got rid of all of the tillage and all the conventional farming, we're going around all of our pastures with trees and putting trees mm-hmm. around every pastures of be shade food for the livestock and then putting in orchards organic orchards or grant organic vineyards that we can sell that produce to our customers as well and for us but if we're going to go through in all the effort with the land base that we've been blessed with we figured why not sell it and let everybody else enjoy highly nutritious foods and then try to better oh. our soil and get it even better Absolutely. Yes. Use whatever you have been blessed with because it's there for a reason. Um, what what uh, what breed are the cattle that you're raising? I didn't ask. We have a mix of a lot of stuff. So we started off with a red Angus herd. And the reason we went with red Angus is everybody likes the taste of Angus. It's easy to market Angus. But then if this thing fell and it just didn't work, I could flip the herd and sell it. And almost anybody would buy it. But since then, since we got in and figured out that it actually works, homesteading works, the basics of raising livestock on pasture works, we've been modifying our herd. And now we have some Herefords, we have some Highlander, we have some Red Devon. I think that's all we have out there. We have some Black Angus. We have some Dexter. And just trying to figure out the best flavor of meat that we can produce using all those breeds. Yeah. Um. So do you guys have babies, baby cows in the spring, or do you stagger it so you have young ones all year round? We try to only do it in the spring when the grass is green and lush highly nutritious so generally we start calving middle of may and may through june okay and that's just to and be in how long is, yeah how long is the gestation period for for a, a heifer it, to take it real simple it's it's right around 10 months Okay, so about the same as as ladies, as women. Okay, so you've got a really good set schedule then for when the babies are born. Yes. Yeah, we we try to keep it tight because of how big our operation is. We need to be able to document everything. Where if it was just a a smaller home, so you don't have to keep those documents and where everything's, where all your livestock's coming from. But if we have one that's not producing as well, we want to cut that from a herd. That way we can keep bettering our herd and our herd health as we go. Yeah. I was looking at your website and it's, I can't remember what section it was in, but it said something about having the calves stay with the moms for longer than would be considered normal. And I don't remember how long it was. Was it 10 months? So at least 10 months. Uh, last year we we never did separate them. We 
we let nature naturally wean. And how did that go? Because I don't know when the calves, when mom says, I'm done with you, go eat grass. It worked really well. I I think we're going to do it again this year. Yeah. We did have a couple cows that didn't wean quite as efficiently and their body score went down a little bit, but then their body kicked in and they naturally weaned. So it's easier on us. So why not keep doing what nature does? Yeah, absolutely. Um, How, how does the, how does the mama cow tell the calf that she's done? Because we just had kittens here and the mama cat at about nine weeks the kittens would run up and try to nurse and she would hiss at them and swat them and walk away. And I don't know if mama cows kick their babies, but, but our cat basically said no more and kicked the kittens off of her. So, so some cows will do that. And then other ones just dry up and there's no more milk. Oh, so the babies are like, there's nothing here. We're done. Yes. But most of them, they'll start separating themselves and pushing them away. Okay. Um, so I assume that the calves just, they start eating what mom's eating and they drink water and that's, that's how it continues from there on out. Yeah. So on, with the calves, they'll start eating grass generally day two, day three, long as it's green and luscious. Mm-hmm. So they're not drinking just milk except for maybe day one and day two. They're, they're trying to do what mom does. Oh, okay. They're copying her. So it must be it must be a lot of fun in May and June for you guys because you've got all the usual stuff and then you have calves running around too. It's so much easier to get a whole family out in the pasture when the calves are there. Oh yeah. Yep, um when I when I was a kid, my grandfather was friends with the people who had the dairy farm down the road and we would go and visit them, and every time we went to visit them, it was in the spring when the calves were there, and there was always at least one or two day-and-a-half, two-day-old calves, and um, the the guy, the owner of the farm, would be like, there's five calves in the pen out there, as usual, go go play with them, and we would go out, and we would go in the pen, and pet the calves and they were like dogs and they would suck on our fingers because they were hungry and it's one of my favorite memories growing up is being around those calves that's a good memory yeah and of course they had barn kittens all the time so between the calves and the kittens us kids were busy and my parents could visit and it was it was just great fun to go there every time we went so you have kids? We do. I have two little girls. And they okay. have And love. do they help out or Yeah, they're If you all I got to do is go in and go you want to go out and check the cattle or want to go out and feed the chickens, they're they're all in. They love going out there, holding the chickens. And how I'm... chicks. Yeah, I don't know if you faded out there or not. How old are the kids? 
So uh, my kids are four and five. Oh, cute. <laughs> cute age. Yes. So do you guys sell um, chicken meat too? We do. Yes, we do. Okay. We have a mobile chicken coop that we pull around our pastures following our cattle. And pretty much the same thing with the chickens. The chickens came in because we had people that wanted nutritious pasture-raised chickens, and it, they complement the cattle. They The chickens nice. come behind and help spread the manure out after the cattle go through, eat the worms and anything else in the the fly larvae they're real good mm-hmm. compliment and then we have we have some sheep coming in this year and then we've been working on a hog operation a pastured hog that also gets some grain to bring those in to follow and do a little tillage in spots of the pasture that need a little more massaging and a little more destruction to get the grass to really thrive but we don't yeah how we've been playing with the hogs now for four and a half years and it just it's a different animal to do hogs out on pasture yeah um how much acreage do you guys have because i mean with 50 head of cattle and chickens and and you and your wife and your kids and gardens i'm assuming it isn't a an acre spread <laughs> no definitely it oh, it's not that that would be a blessing in at sometimes an acre or even 10. So we're running just south of 400 acres. Wow. So only, only 200, 200, 220 acres of those is pasture. We're working on switching the rest of it over to pasture that the rest of it's in (laughs) hay ground. No, you say only, uh, we, we have 3.1 acres. Our, that's what our property is, and um, a good, probably half to an acre of it is tree line, and then probably another half of the acre is covered with a house and a pole barn and a garage that's useless. So, so we maybe have three quarters of an acre for for gardening, and we have chickens, so we've been letting them out this unseasonably warm late fall first time we've let them out in three years and they love wandering so i'm debating putting free range on our our chicken um egg cartons this this spring because they're going to continue to go out when the weather's not terrible Mm -hmm. yeah our chickens are outside from about four weeks old unless the weather doesn't permit and Mm -hmm. the chicken open 24 7 yeah, our chickens hate ice and snow. Every time, every every year, they they love being out in the run until there's ice and snow. And then they basically dig up a space in the run to be on dirt, and then that's it. They don't want to go anywhere where there's ice or snow. Sure. They hate it. They're, they're fair-weather fowl, is, is what I've been jokingly calling them to my husband. He just laughs at me. Yeah, so we went with uh, Rhode Island Red Chickens. Uh huh. The reason we did that is they're a little hardier, and that you were also getting more back to the heritage breeds. They enjoy snow. They go out, pick through it, 
and then they're they're also right behind our cattle so they'll go and get warmth with the cattle or go back into the coop but they're they're moving around and then we have two dogs out with our chickens as well guard dogs mm-hmm. and dogs go make a track the chickens will be right there figuring out what they were digging at yeah what kind of dogs are they so we have a great pyrenees and an antolian shepherd oh wow they're really pretty i know about those shepherds i would love to have one but they're big right they're a good size yeah we we have a shepherd she's a mini australian shepherd which means that she doesn't usually come in at any more than 35 pounds so she's she's our supposed guard dog and she's a really good watchdog but she does not have a a job job like your dogs have (laughs) you you know so we have dogs up in the yard and dogs out in the pasture as well but the the dogs out in the pasture we don't we'll go out and give them a quick pet on the head but you don't get to enjoy them because they're work dogs yeah are they are they friendly though? Like they know who you are and they know that you give them food and water. They do, and they know when a stranger comes up. You see, you don't go into our pastures without one of us going because you got to call their name. Otherwise, they'll they'll come right up to you and really mm-hmm. give you. A good well, they're doing their jobs. Then that's good. Um, they are. There's a there's a great Pyrenees who lives like three and a half miles down the road from us and his name is is Yukon and he showed up here oh a year and a half ago walked from his place to our place on a pretty busy road and um I stepped outside to do something and there was a big white dog in my yard and I was like hey buddy where'd you come from because I'd never seen him before and he walked right over to me and sat down and looked at me and nudged my hand so I would pet him. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. What do I do with you? Come to find out, and I'm sure that you know about this, Great Pyrenees dogs tend to wander. And so he's he's the neighborhood wandering Great Pyrenees. And I love him. I want to snuggle him and, and smush his face and play with him every time he shows up. But I can't because he'll keep coming back. He's that friendly. So I don't know if your your Great Pyrenees wanders, but uh, heads up to anybody who's thinking about getting a Great Pyrenees puppy. They like to go visit other people. That they do. I got a real clever one. He figured out how to go under the electric fence. Mm-hmm. His boundaries got a little bigger, and that's a hard one to break. <laughs> Yeah, once they once they get to go visit other places, they want to revisit the other places. <laughs> um our our little dog was very curious about the Great Pyrenees. I had to let her out, obviously, because I couldn't keep her in all day. And she went outside and dead stopped and just sat there like, "What do I do with this big dog?" And that Great Pyrenees walked right over to her and sniffed her and licked her and was like, hi, do you want to be friends? And I thought, oh, okay, nobody's going to die today. This is good. And that's where we lost the connection for that conversation. Thank you for listening today. Thank you to Brandon Triple Silo Meats for uh, sharing all he knows about organic meat and how that works. And uh, if you like what we're doing, subscribe or like our channel. Thanks. <laughs>